Well, good morning. Uh, a very warm and sunny welcome to you this morning uh, as we uh, worship together. Welcome to those online and to many of you uh, here in the building. It's great to have you with us. Uh, in some really exciting news this evening, we're going to have four baptisms. As you'll see in the building, the baptism pool's open. Uh, we look forward to celebrating that as we hear the stories of Sophie, uh, Cal, Elizabeth and Roz and what the Lord's done in their lives. As a church, as we go through the book of Nehemiah, we're thinking about rebuilding and regathering as God's people. And we want to do that by lifting our minds, lifting our hearts uh, to the Lord. So let me read from Nehemiah 9. Some verses uh, should be on the screen. From Nehemiah 9, uh, verse 5, uh, as we come to worship this morning, lifting our eyes to him. Nehemiah 9, verse 5, starting at the second part. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Let's pray together as we come to the Lord. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you are the God of all creation, that you are the one who has created all things, and that you are the one who is to be praised and worshipped. So we pray that you would help us, Lord, to do that this morning, to push out all the distractions in our lives and fix our eyes on you. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, by your spirit to come to you and worship you in Jesus' name. Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And Lord, we pray that as it says in Habakkuk, the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we thank you that as we partner with Bethan and Tenebu in sending them to Senegal, that they would be part of that project to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. And we pray that you would continually bless them as a family as they prepare uh, to go. And we pray, that, pray for their family, pray for the whole family, for Tenebu, Bethan, for Lilia, for Joe and Naomi. We pray as well for Suzanne in uh, Senegal. Uh, We pray that you would be with her at this time as well. We pray for them as they transition as a family and and the challenge that that will be after almost two years here. Uh, We pray that you would help them, Lord, in that. We pray for the work of the clinic as Tenebu sets to construct and then manage that. We pray that you would help them, Lord, to really be distinct in how they do that as Christians. And we pray for Bethan as well as she tends to the spiritual care of the children. And pray that you would help her as a mum to really help them to grow in grace and love of you. And closer to home, we pray for those uh, in our church family who are perhaps struggling at the moment. We pray especially for the, for the Wood family as they grieve the loss of Arthur. We pray that you'd be close to them at this time. We pray for Sally, Susie, Fiona and Kim as they prepare for Norman, Norman's funeral on Tuesday. We pray for Lawrence and Roger too, who've had operations, that they would be able to uh, recover, but then also have opportunities to share the love of Jesus throughout. 
We give you thanks for people who are testifying and will testify of your goodness this evening. Uh, We thank you for Roz, for Elizabeth, for Sophie, and for Cal. May their stories just speak to the hearts of all those present, uh, that they would uh, rejoice in what you've done. And those who don't know you, Lord, that they would turn to you and rejoice in who you are. We thank you for for Sarb and Karen who are settling into the village. Uh, We thank you for them. We pray that you would continually uh, shine your face towards them and bless them in their lives and in their ministries. They come here to be part of your church family, uh, to serve and to love others. And we we pray for your word this morning, Father. We pray for, for Neil as he preaches. May you give him freedom, boldness, and clarity to speak to our hearts that we would be truly transformed by the power of your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reading this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 9. Colin read a couple of verses from this chapter at the beginning of the service. We'll be reading verses 1 through 18. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night 
with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, what a difference a week makes. Last week, the country was filled with optimism as we looked to the England football team to bring unity and joy in the face of challenging times. There was talk of a bank holiday, reception at number 10, the players receiving honours. It was like people came to, to worship this team. But as I said then, even if we were to, to win, that unity would probably be short-lived because it would not be based on a solid foundation. In the end, of course, as you know, we lost and the consequence was criticism of the manager, division, racism, accusations of hypocrisy against the government, etc., etc. Every human being has a natural capacity for worship, for our lives to become dominated by adoration of a thing, an activity, or a person. For many people in this country and throughout the world, it is sport. You only needed to watch the, the scenes of uh, bars and clubs up and down this country crammed with fans or worshippers. For others, it may not be sport. It may be their work. Uh, maybe they're their families, their homes, maybe their holidays, their shopping, etc., etc. The trouble is the only person who fully deserves our worship is God. And if he is not the object of our worship, if he's not the center of our lives, then we will not find lasting joy and peace because all these other things are unreliable. They will lead to disappointment. We've come to chapter 9 in our series on Nehemiah, which is about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in the 5th century BC. But more importantly, about rebuilding the spiritual life for the people of God. We've seen them give their time and energy sacrificially to this project. We've seen God help them overcome their, their fear and withstand opposition. 
We've seen them address issues of injustice and lack of compassion towards their fellow countrymen. And last week, having completed the walls, we looked at how the Jews gathered as one in submission to the word of God. And there were these mixed emotions we saw, weren't there, of of mourning and rejoicing. Mourning because the people realized their sin and rejoicing because although they were powerless to do anything about it, they understood that God was merciful and gracious towards them. As we come on to chapter 9, the people of Israel have gathered together again. And this time we're told in verse 1 that they are fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. The sackcloth and ashes is a sign of their remorse, of their, their inner repentance, the sorrow they feel in their hearts. They've come, we're told, to confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And before they do that, in verse 3, we're told they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, for six hours. And they spent another quarter, another six hours in confession and worshipping the Lord their God. And most of uh, chapter 9 is a prayer, uh, one of the longest prayers in the Bible. And the prayer begins, like all great prayers, with worship and adoration, focusing on God himself. And the prayer follows a bit of a pattern, praising God for who he is, all that he's done for the people. Uh, Then there comes a confession in verse 16, but your people were arrogant and disobedient and rebellious. Then there comes another but in verse 17. You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. That same pattern is repeated in verse 19. Again, this is a sort of cycle we're getting here. Praise for how God provided for his people in the wilderness and brought them into the promised land. But in verse 26, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. that disobedience again. This time in verse 27, there's a so. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies, that discipline. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them, you listened. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers to rescue them. That deliverance. That cycle keeps uh, carrying on throughout um, this this chapter. And it ends with the acknowledgement that these sins are not just the sins of their ancestors. They confess their own sins as well before God. And in verse 33, in all that happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. And it finishes with a plea in verse 38. We are in great distress. And that cycle may be one that we're familiar with. Um, we come to the Lord in repentance and faith. We start living for God, but we find other things take the position of God in our lives. We begin to worship them instead of him. We come to him again in confession and repentance. We ask for his mercy, but then it happens again. And the question is, how do we break that cycle? How do we break that cycle in our lives? And it starts with worship. And in worship, we remind ourselves of who God is and what he has done. The more we remind ourselves of the greatness of God, the glory of God, the more our rejection of him becomes unbearable to us because our consciences are becoming sensitized to him. 
So what are the things in these uh, first verses that remind us of God and his goodness in this prayer? Well, first of all, God is from everlasting to everlasting, verse 5. The Levites said to the people, stand up, praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. As creatures, we are finite. You know, our lives on this earth start at a certain time and will end at a certain time. We are limited by, by time and space. But God is, is infinite. He cannot be constrained. He's eternal. Before the world was created, there was God. And it's so easy for us to limit our horizons to those of our own small lives and think that uh, this is all there is, particularly during lockdown. Those, those lives become even more constricted. But let's lift our eyes to the eternal Lord and remember that our temporary hardships are far outweighed by a glorious eternity. Secondly, God alone is the Lord. The prayer starts in um, second part of verse 5 with the words, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. People then were surrounded by nations uh, worshipping other gods. And we too today are surrounded by nations worshipping other gods. Um, they may not be religious gods, As I said earlier, we all have a propensity to worship something or someone. But here the people are acknowledging that there can only be one true God. A personal God who had revealed himself to his people in so many different ways. As the rest of the prayer testifies. And who would later reveal himself in person as Jesus Christ became human and walked on this earth. To be reminded that God alone is the Lord should be a challenge to us when we start to put our trust in ourselves or other things in life. God alone is the Lord. Thirdly, God has created all things. Verse 6 says, You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. God created the the universe. It's impossible for our limited human minds to to grasp the the size and the complexity of the universe, the billions of stars and galaxies that that are out there. Well, thanks to to scientists, to technology, thanks to the patience of of cameramen, we are understanding more and more about the the planet on which we live. And the more we understand the, the intricacy, the order of creation, And God's creatures, the more we observe its beauty, the more we are full of admiration for God who created it. God gave each one of us life in the first place. Whatever family situation you were born into, God knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. We owe our existence to God. And it's because God has created all things that he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. He deserves to be worshipped. And the origin of sin is failing to, to give him the glory that is due his name. We're carrying on in verse 7. God is faithful to his promises. Now verse 7 says, You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. He found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him 
to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You've kept your promise because you are righteous. God kept his promise to Abraham, not just so he would give his descendants the land, but that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through his offspring. And that happened when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, into the world with a promise that all who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. What a wonderful promise. Fifthly, God has given us good instructions for life. Have a look at verse 13. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. Not that um, you oppressed them by imposing dictatorial rules that prevented them having any fun. Not you didn't help them understand how to live life to the full. Verse 20 says, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. The reason they read from the book of the law of God for six hours is to better understand these laws that God has given them for their benefit. But sadly, as humans, we still prefer to make up our own rules to think that we know best. But how as creatures can we make up our own morals? God designed us. He knows what is best for us. And finally, God has provided us with all we need. One of the words that crops up most frequently in this passage is give or gave. We already mentioned that God gave us life. Have a look at verse 15. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. Or verse 25, they captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. They ate the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. He gave them so much and he continues to give us so much today and yes he may have withdrawn some of those blessings during uh, the lockdown period but hopefully that has served to make us more grateful for all that he has given us because how easy it is to to get upset about things we don't have and to thank god for his goodness and for all the things we do have it is good to remind ourselves of who god is and what he's done And we can do that individually, but it's a wonderful thing to gather together, isn't it? Uh, As God's people and express our worship to him. As we remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done, we become aware of the areas of our lives where we have let him down. Which brings us on to our confession. That we need to confess where we fail to acknowledge who God is and what he has done. Sin is not only an offence against God, it causes our relationship with God to be broken. We talk about sin, we normally talk about it in relation to our individual sin between us and God. Um, But here it's it's corporate sin, that people confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And as they go through the whole history of Israel here, recalling how their ancestors were disobedient, it is pretty brutal language. It doesn't try and gloss over it, it tells it for what it is. 
And it starts there in verse 16. They received so much from you, God, but they became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not remember, did not obey your commands. They refused to listen. They failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. As I said earlier, this pattern is repeated time after time. They realize their sin, they ask God for forgiveness and go and do the same thing again. Verse 28, as soon as they were at rest, they again did evil in your sight. How many times do these words stiff-necked or arrogant or stubborn appear? It is the people who thought they knew what was best. But here comes the surprising thing. Where does this whole thing look like it's going in the prayer? Remember that situation? The people are back in Jerusalem after Israel, after exile. They're still slaves at this point to a foreign power. Even when the, the fields produce good crops, they're sent overseas back to, to Persia. They have to pay exorbitant taxes. The situation is still not good. And so far they've been confessing the sins of their ancestors. Where it looks like it's going is, weren't they awful? But what did we do to deserve this hardship that we are suffering now? Surely we're, we're innocent victims. That's what people often do, isn't it? They find someone else to blame, a scapegoat. Blame your, your parents or, or your lack of parents. Blame your education. Blame your government. That's always an easy target. But then look at verse 33. Because as in all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Just as our ancestors were disobedient, so are we. Just as they rebelled against you, so have we. Just as they became stiff-necked, so have we. Tremendously honest, isn't it? I wonder how honest are we about um, letting God down? How specific are we in our confession to, to God? It's very easy, isn't it, just to say the words of the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And to move on. Sorry, Lord, for those things I've done wrong today. I can't remember what they were, but sorry for them. How often do we take time just to reflect on what those things are? It's good to be specific in our confession of sin. And as we do so, to ask ourselves, what is the real issue in my heart that that is revealing? What does it show that I worship more than God? Let's take an example. Someone sends you an email at work. And it makes you angry. Sure, you've all been there. Uh, you might restrain yourself from sending an angry response back because you know that wouldn't be right. But instead, you're going to have a moan to somebody else about it, which of course is wrong. But in such a situation, put aside for a moment whether the other person who sent you that email was right or wrong and look at your reaction. How did you respond? Why did that make you angry? What was it about it? Was it maybe because you felt it was critical of, of something you've done, of your performance, and it's really important to you that you perform well. Your importance is a God to you. Maybe it's because you, you haven't come across well to someone else, and what people think of you is really important to you. Your popularity. 
Maybe it's because you, you know it will distract you from all the other things you, you need to do and the, and the control you have over your time, your day, your situation is really important to you. And that has been thrown out. And each sinful thought or action is an issue of the heart. And it's good to ask God just to reveal that, that to you. Jesus was more critical of those who were guilty of pride and spiritual arrogance than those who admitted what they had done wrong. If we're going to rid ourselves of that pride and arrogance, we need to start by confessing our sins to each other more freely and stop trying to give the impression that we are better than we really are. After all, James 5 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. In Acts 19, in the account of the early church, it describes how many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. I know many of you have got prayer partners or people you, you read the Bible together with. And if you haven't, let me know and we can try and fix you up with somebody. But in those, those twos and threes or fours, however many it is, pray for each other's needs, but also confess your sins to each other. Hold each other accountable. Come to God and seek his forgiveness. We need to confess where we fail to acknowledge who God is and what he's done. And the wonderful thing about confession is that we have a merciful God who wants to forgive us. Each time the Israelites confess the sins of their ancestors, it's followed by reassurance of God's mercy. But you, Lord, are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Well, verse 19, have a look down in, in your Bibles. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. Verse 28, and when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. Verse 31, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. As human beings, we cannot fully comprehend how anyone would forgive us time after time. Yes, we, we understand forgiveness, but we, we think of forgiveness in the sense of, well, I'll, I'll give them another chance, but I'm not going to let them off again after that. When people, Peter, the disciple, asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? He was thinking, look at me, seven times. I bet no one else would forgive somebody that many times. But Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, there's no limit to the number of times you should forgive somebody who sins against you because there's no limit to how many times I, as God, will forgive you. Jesus died on the cross so that all of our sins will be forgiven. And you may be someone here this morning who's thinking, well, there's no way that God would forgive me. What I've done is so bad, or I just keep on doing it. He must have run out with patience with me by now. God will not run out of patience with you. He abounds in love. And the issue is whether we are prepared to seek his forgiveness, which requires humility, doesn't it? But if you've never done that, what is stopping you? What is stopping you saying to God, I was wrong? 
I rejected you as the one who gave me life, who gave me good things to enjoy, who gave me instructions for living. I'm sorry. Thank you that Jesus died on my behalf so that I might be forgiven. Please forgive me and help me to follow him as my Lord and Saviour. That is what four people are going to be doing this evening as they are baptised. And we look forward to, to witnessing that. The reason we can confess with confidence is because God is a merciful God. The other wonderful thing about confession is that confession leads to repentance and change. Confession is not about just coming up with a list of things I have done wrong, having them forgiven in some sort of ritual way, and then just carrying on and doing them again. Confession, asking for forgiveness on its own, is no good if we don't want to change. It goes alongside repentance, which is a decision in God's power to turn from sin and change our ways and trustfully in him. Otherwise, it's a bit like me playing golf. I know the mistakes I'm going to make even before I make them. Every time I play, I make the same mistakes. I haven't taken the time to correct them and improve and do something about it. And we can go through our Christian lives like that. We know the things we do wrong, but we've somehow just sort of accepted them. That's just who I am, as if God cannot change us. In September, we're going to be doing a course in home groups called Real Change to help us in the power of God's Spirit to become more like Jesus, which should be the goal for all of us if we are Christians. So let's pray that God would use that to change us for his glory. Well, the prayer finishes in verse 38 with the words, we are in great distress, verse 37. And it's like they're saying, we know we need to get out of this spiral of sin. We know we need to change. And we know that we are powerless on our own to do that. But you can help us. And next week we will see the, the steps they, they take with God's help to change as they renew their covenant promises. In verse 38 it says, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. We'll come on to that next week. But let's close this this, this morning by having a moment, uh, just a quiet, for personal reflection, personal confession, as we come to God and acknowledge those ways in which we fail to acknowledge who he is and what he's done for us. Moment of quiet before I pray. Lord God, you alone are God. You alone are worthy of our worship. And we are sorry where we haven't worshipped you fully, where we've worshipped other things or people or activities in your place. Please forgive us, we pray. Please forgive us for the things that we have done this week where we fail to give you the, the honour that is due your name. We fail to live lives that are Christ-like. We fail to do what he would have done. We thank you that you are a merciful God. You're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And we thank you that our sins are forgiven, 
because Jesus took them on our behalf on the cross. We praise you for his sacrifice for us. And Lord, as we go into this week, we do pray that uh, you would cause us to repent, turn away from our sin, and put our trust fully in you. That you provide for all of our needs. You provide the joy, the peace, the strength we need. And help us to trust in you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we look forward to seeing many of you in person at 6 p.m. this evening and uh, many of you following along online as well. I'm sure it'll be a a wonderful encouragement uh, to us all. Uh, But let me just close just with the words from Nehemiah in chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Let me pray to close. Father God, we thank you that you are a forgiving, gracious, and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you will never desert us because Jesus Christ was deserted on the cross that we might receive your welcome, that we would be forgiven as we come to you. And so, Lord, therefore, help us to repent from our hearts, to confess our sin from our hearts, that we would be radically changed to live for you. We pray that you would help us to do that by the power of your spirit as we seek to live lives that bring you glory and pleasure. We pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.